Off the ball. Paul could have been chucked out the island squad numerous times. Jack supported him. He was incredibly sensitive to anything. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Turn our attention to football. We're going to talk to Daniel Harris, who's standing by. Daniel, good morning to you. Hiya. Thanks many for jumping on. Um, we've an, an FA Cup final to chat about. We'll do that in a minute. But first of all, if you don't mind, could we start with your piece that you've written in The Guardian um, yesterday evening? It appeared online about anti-Semitism in football, uh, specifically about inaction, I think, around anti-Semitism in football. It's a very personal story. It's extremely well written and uh, hopefully challenging, I guess, for lots of football goers. Uh, yeah, I think that it was what happened was a few weeks ago, um, I wrote a story. I came by some anti-Semitism in um, the WhatsApp group of the Ashburton Army and uh, who are an Arsenal fan group who are now have been involved with the club a little bit. The club are helping them in a bid to improve the atmosphere. And as a Jew, and I say this in the piece, you're never really surprised when you come across anti-Semitism. So to explain that, I my my, my grandmother um, survived the Holocaust, so did my grandfather. And when that happens, I think Jews of my parents' generation were raised to see anti-Semitism everywhere, as you might imagine, because of what had happened to their parents and what they what they grew up with. So as as a Jew, you're never really surprised when you come across anti-Semitism because it is in a lot of places and you've kind of been raised to be on the lookout for it. Like there's always be kind of in Jewish homes, you'd know which celebrities were thought to be anti-Semitic, for example. And I'm sure that all different minorities have their versions of this too. But so I wasn't surprised when I came by these messages when they were sent to me. But what I was surprised by were how many of them there were, the the real ferocity of them, that some of the stuff was so specific that it really like it, it burned your eyes. And I actually, I said to the editor that I was dealing with at the time, I've heard about these messages i haven't got them yet someone's sending them to me and i I know that he thought what i thought he thought yeah whatever there'll be some borderline stuff and what actually happened was there was loads of stuff and the the, not and it wasn't just how much of it there was as i said but the ferocity of it and also the apparent lack of interventions by almost everyone on that group and so that was that was why i wrote about it and then that was why i wanted to write about anti-semitism more generally because as i also say in the piece it is much easier being Jewish in the UK today than it is being a lot of other things. And I understand that. I understand that very well as someone who's married to a British Ghanaian. Uh, in fact, yeah, I, I thought it was something I thought I understood before, but I absolutely did not understand it until until I started seeing my wife uh, a long time ago now. So I, that, I think that's a really important point to make. But nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that if you support Arsenal in particular, but not just um, not just Arsenal, what something you have to factor into your football support is the presence of anti-Semitism because of the Tottenham connection. I know this also happens, it also affects other London clubs. And it's also important to say that Arsenal, I know, are doing great work to try and combat this. But the idea that this stuff exists in society, which it does and doesn't exist in football, is obviously nonsense. But we could then say, well, it's a social problem. So what's football got to do with it? But what I want to say is football is it's incredible social force. In some ways, there's nothing in the world that is like football. Genuinely, there is nothing that crosses boundaries of um, social boundaries, religious boundaries, uh, borders, uh, borders of sexuality, 
borders of sex. So any kind of border you can put up, football has crossed that. And I don't think you can say that about anything because the other, I guess, two massive pan-global things are religion. And obviously we know there are a few different ones of those. And music, and music is quite regional. So football is that thing. And if football is that thing, then we should be using football to make the world a better place. And not just for Jews either, but for all the different minorities who have felt othered in some way by the football machine. It's... um that point is worthy of a, of a thesis that I'm sure has been done. It's worthy of uh, an hour-long conversation. The point about the blank canvas nature of sport, and we are guaranteed are going to get comments here saying, sports show, stick to the sport, but I am absolutely on board with that idea of it being a blank canvas for the exposure of the um, brilliant things and the fallibilities of society and the opportunity to use sport as a, a mechanism to, to tackle some of those things. Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you mentioned about Arsenal, but about the role of Tottenham in it as well, Daniel, because you bring up a really interesting point in the article about the issue around non-Jewish Tottenham fans referring to themselves as the Y-word and the, I guess, cyclical nature in some regards of that uh, being then used against them as non-Jewish people as a term of abuse. And it's a really complex circle and I wonder about that and I wonder about the role that Tottenham uh, have to play in that in terms of an appetite to stamp it out. Yeah, uh, just to go back to one thing you said before that, uh, you said that people say just stick to the football. So I think it's important to say that deciding not to talk about politics is a political decision. So it is not possible to keep politics out of football. Every time you have three people in a situation, there is politics. And when you have, say, the World Cup, you have nation states singing anthems, wearing colours of their flags, competing at stuff. Like that is political, like nations are involved. So I just wanted to make that point. So opting not to talk about politics when you're talking about sport is itself a political decision. But on specifically to do with Tottenham, I, I, I'm someone, as people who listen to this show know, like I go to football. So I understand how football crowds work and how football identity works. And so what you've got is you've had a situation where Spurs have been decided by other people that they're a Jewish club. For what it's worth, when I was a kid growing up in North London in the in the 80s and 90s, I went to the biggest Jewish primary school, went to the biggest Jewish secondary school. Tottenham were the best supported club. I mean, I guess I, I actually I think that might well have changed now in, in North London. I think it's probably uh, probably Arsenal seems to be more widely supported. But Spurs were categorised as this Jewish club. At the time, they were owned by Irving Scholar, who was Jewish. They were owned by Alan Sugar, who was Jewish. So... That sort of enabled, or not enabled, that prompted some rival supporters, I'd say particularly the other London clubs, but not just other London clubs. I've had words with people about the City United as well, but I'd say mainly um, mainly London clubs, to say, well, Spurs are a Jewish club, and then give Spurs anti-Semitic abuse as though all of them were Jewish. And whether, whether that's meant... Whether, it's you, whether Spurs are an avatar for Jews or it's just an opportunity to say this stuff that you're not really meant to say, who knows? But Spurs are, as you say, termed as yids and call. And then what, what's happened is Spurs have taken that word and called it to, and applied it to themselves. In I guess the, the 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 phrase that would generally be used is they're reclaiming the word. Except that word isn't theirs to reclaim. For what it's worth, it's gen. It's not been a massive term of anti-Semitic abuse in my experience, the stuff people are likely to say, the anti-Semitic abuse I've had in my life tends not to reference that word. But in a footballing context, that is that is the word. And it was very prominent in that Ashburton Army WhatsApp group that I referred to before. And 
what you end up with is you end up with, because we know, as you mentioned, the cyclical nature of football charting, team A charts one thing, team B chart something worse if they can think of it, and we go round and round. So what you get is you now get Spurs, non-Jewish Spurs fans, calling themselves Yids, almost to bait anti-Semitic abuse out of other clubs. Um, I see it watching United as well, where people will sing, where's your famous Munich song, in order to sort of bait Munich abuse out of other people. Um, because the Munich abuse came first, but then it becomes one group's ability to act, whether it's disaster chanting or anti-Semitic chanting or racist chanting, becomes something that their rivals use against them to incite them to do it again. So what you end up with is you end up with non-Jewish Tottenham fans singing We Are The Yids or Yid Army or whatever in order to incite anti-Semitic abuse out of other non-Jewish fans. And at the same time, Jews are expected to believe that no Tottenham fan who's chanting those words is secretly thinking, this is kind of this is kind of cute, isn't it? I can go to the game and I can chant this. I can't do it anywhere else. And that is one of the great things about football. I appreciate that. And I say this in the piece, that you are able to feel feelings that you can't feel anywhere else. You're able to sing songs that you can't sing anywhere else. And it's that off-key humour that you also find in the changing room or dormitories or what classrooms or whatever but uh, we're expected to believe that no tottenham fan is enjoying the charting of yid army because it involves yid army or whatever and that itself also feels like yeah i can't stretch my credulity that far supporters groups have a lot have a lot to play in this uh, daniel don't they you mentioned the ashburton army there for people unfamiliar they're an arsenal supporters group but um uh, are people unfamiliar with how these chants sometimes are arranged a lot of these borders groups just meet up in a pub come up with chants decide what's good decide what's not and um, maybe d- tell us what, what like the Ashburton army a lot of their chants have been problematic let's just say in recent years um i don't know i i i, I don't think it's an Ashburton army thing i don't really want to focus on them because it's just it's this wide problem i i, I haven't i could easily have written the piece and said well i want the, these people to be found and punished but it's not it's not about vengefulness and it's not about specific people. It's about these things are happening. Now what global steps can we do to make it better across the board? It's not it's not about singling out the Ashburton Army, who as far as I understand it also, in order to join the Ashburton Army, you have to you have to be involved in social action. So they're also people are doing good things and Arsenal are doing good things. And I, I don't know I don't know how I mean, I know how football chants sometimes work. Sometimes people sit there and write them or sometimes something happens at the game and it's just a response to what's happened immediately. So there are all sorts of different ways in which this stuff works. But I think the point is more, we have this problem. It's a problem in society and it's a problem in football. What do we do to try and stop it being a problem in football while at the same time hoping that by stopping it being a problem in football, then it will also filter through to society, while also society has these other things to do. So rather than becoming the vicious circle that we talked about before, it becomes a virtuous circle. Yeah, I think your article has uh, done some service, let's say, and I'm sure that I hope it's the start of a conversation as well um, in a wider scale. Let's talk a little bit about the FA Cup final. Um, it's the, I, I read it yesterday. It was the first time a Manchester derby for an FA Cup final, and I had to... I had, to, I had to think to myself, that's that can't be right. This uh, this source is not credible, but it turns out it is. Earlier than usual, kickoff, Daniel. Is that uh, three o'clock kickoff to do with like thirty thousand fans from each club at a neutral venue? And if it spills in a bit later, it might spill over a bit later. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess that is probably a uh, secure a safe a security decision, a police decision. Uh, in the way that, yeah, if I remember in the nineties, United used to play every time United played Leeds, kicked off about seven thirty in the morning. 
<laughs> and, and I guess, yeah, it's it's back to that, the traditional time. Um, so, in all, I mean, it, it will, uh, let's be real, it will probably be edgy because it's a uh, Manchester United, Manchester City Cup final. There's, there's, there's a lot on the line and people will be feeling edgy about this. I mean, so you will expect there to be, yeah, people discussing these things with rival supporters. Yeah. Uh, on the face of it, obviously, it's, you know, uh, City's inevitable drive to the treble and it can't be stopped. And then you sort of start to pick away at that and you uh, look at the two managers, for example, whose careers have interlocked and you look at the recent games. I mean, and it's hard. I don't know what you're reading into the 6-3 in, was it October? And then the more recent um, United win in the league. Is there a thread from that game from one game to the next game to tomorrow, or is this just a total outlier given the nature of the game? Uh, I'd say the 6-3 is it's partly an outlier because United had only just started under Ten Hag and Casemiro, they didn't have Casemiro for that game. Varane got injured in the first half. That would be one way of looking at that game to just totally dismiss it for that reason. But, I mean, that was by far the best any team's played against United this season. And until City sort of started going on this run in the, over the last couple of months, I thought like that was by far the best Premier League performance of the season. And United, I said they didn't have Casemiro in that game. They didn't. But they also did have uh, Lissandro Martinez. And he did find it difficult against Haaland. But it's also the case that I think it was 4-0 at half time that game. Without Martinez, it would have been more than 4-0. So... It would be silly not to think, not to notice how well City played that day and to know that they can, they are capable of playing that well again. On the other hand, as you say, by the time United beat them at Old Trafford, United were a much better team. They had Casemiro. They, like Garnacho was integrated, someone that they could bring on to change things. I think I would feel I'd have more of a sneak for United if Martinez was fit. I think not having him makes a massive difference, not just defensively, because it, because they have actually been okay defensively recently. Although I must say, I'm generally not that worried about about Victor Lindelof. I think at his best and not next to Maguire, he's he's a good player. He's not a player as good as United should have, but he's a good player. But because he lacks both pace and strength, it makes him a problem against Erling Haaland. I think so. Uh, I, I, I obviously City City are, are big favourites, but United have players that can hurt any team. But they will need to play really well to win, and City don't, probably don't need to play that well to win. Would you expect United to copy what, what happened in that 2-1 win at Old Trafford that, that Adrian mentioned, Daniel? Because they kind of, I guess, corrected some errors that they'd made in the previous game. They, they stopped defending deep. Um, or they actually focused, sorry, defending on, uh, deep, attacked quickly, um, and didn't really press City too high up the pitch as well. So maybe that's that's one way in which you can beat City. There, there aren't many ways to beat them, but surely that game is, is one example Ten Hag can use. Um, I, I, th- I think the, the thing about that game that surprised me at the time was because we United lost to City at the be- in, in, in that 6-3 and it felt like Ten Hag just went into that game and thought, well, we'll, imp- we'll play our way and impose our way of playing and that'll be all right. And that obviously didn't work. United were nowhere near good enough to do that. Then I thought that when, we play- when United played City at home, he wouldn't play, he wouldn't play Fred. I mean, sorry, he wouldn't play Christian Eriksen because in order to compete with City, you need to compete physically and you need to be able to run. And a midfielder, Bruno, Christian Eriksen and Casemiro, I think doesn't have enough legs to take on City. So I think one of the questions Ten Hag has to answer is what the composition of his midfield is. And he might decide to play Christian Eriksen again. I think that would be a mistake. Wembley's a big pitch and I'd say that they need they need more legs in midfield. He might then decide to play Christian Eriksen and Fred and then play Bruno in one of the wide positions, which itself might depend on whether Anton is fit. Um, I th- I'm pretty sure I heard him say 
uh say on Sunday he thought he would be, and he always plays if he is. Mm. So you might decide to pack them to just defend the box, which um which United tried to do when they lost to Guardiola's Barcelona in the 2011 Champions League final. They um they might decide to uh, defend the box and just hit on the break. In which case you probably want some fast players up front, which I mean. You might then play Garnacho, not Sancho, which I don't think will happen. Or you might think, well, you can't just sit there and wait to concede. You need to try and get in amongst City and try and win the ball high up the pitch, which again is something that Fred needs, that you want Fred for. But I think the thing about City that's interesting to me that has, seems to have changed is that if you think about all of Guardiola's previous teams, they've all been possession teams. And what's happened over the course of the season, main, not main, more by accident than by design, it kind of feels, is that City have changed from becoming a possession team to um, a possession team and a power team. Because obviously they signed Haaland, who wasn't particularly a player. I think that Guardi- I think Guardiola wanted that kind of centre-forward. It was just that a centre-forward that good became available and he was that kind of centre-forward. You have to sign him. But then he end- he's ended up with three good defenders at the back and he's never really had good defenders in defence before, which sounds ludicrous to say. I just found it funny after after they, they beat Chelsea when they got the trophy. He said that sort of the development this year has been defenders you can defend. And like the, made me laugh. The foremost tactical mind of his generation and many generations suddenly realising that that's, that was a significant thing in a football team. But it is significant when you don't have Busquets, Iniesta and Xavi and Messi to get your defence out of trouble or to mean that you can't get at that defence. But so he's got those. He's got three blokes at the back who are big and strong and fast: Diaz, um, Akanji, and um, Walker. And then now in front of them, he's got Rodri and Stones, who are two more big lads. And the thing that I felt watching City was the way that they play engaged me in a more visceral manner than uh, against Madrid. They engaged me in a more visceral manager manner than any Guardiola team has before because. I, I'm used to watching power teams, really. The Fer- Fergie's best teams were mainly power teams. Klopp's teams, were, Klopp's teams are power teams as well. And personally, that's what I want in a football team. I want them to be strong and fast and hard and vicious. And watching them against Madrid, which was I have, was an incredible performance, it, they didn't just pass around Madrid, they ran over them. They didn't just run around them, they ran over them. And that is that is something that we haven't really seen from a Guardiola team before and something that United will have to contend with because they're not a particularly big team. In a word, United or City? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> City, obviously. Oh, um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I know City. I know City are favourites. I know City are likely to win. And when I said to my wife, I'm afraid it might be our, it might be our anniversary, but I'm afraid I've got to nip off to Wembley for a few hours. I, I know <laughs> on, on that day, I know, I know what I'm likely to see. But uh, I'm not going to sit here and say on the day before the cup fight and say, yeah, 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 City, I'm afraid. I, I, don't, I don't have that in my DNA. And in about the same number of words, are United getting uh, Mason Mount and Harry Kane? Uh, it looks like there's a good chance they get, they'll get Mason Mount. Uh, I think he's a good player. Um, I don't, if he's being signed for the squad and they're also in, in sort of a faster, younger Ericsson, then fair enough. If he was being signed with no other midfield player, then I guess... I would have two questions is I think to, you know, I think United really needs someone who's a bit more physical than Mount, someone who can take the ball off the defense and bring it forward. And I know, I mean, that's really what Ten Hag wants is re- ideal signing still Frankie de Jong. Problem being, he's a bit of a unicorn. If you can't get him, who do you get? Who's like him? No one really. Um, so I think that, and also is Mason Mount good enough? 
as in I know he's a good player, but in order to compete with City, and that is the benchmark currently, you probably need to be able to you need to be able to engage them in a the battle, and you need you need stronger players than them, or better players than them, or both. And I'm not sure Mount is either of those things, even though I think he's good. But he's someone that United want. He's someone that apparently Arteta likes, that Klopp likes. These guys know ball. They know ball better than I, better than me, better than all of us listening to this show. So I have to respect that. And at 24, he's got a lot of improving to do. I like his big game temperament. I like I like his competitive personality. I like his dedication. So I think that he'd be a good buy, but I'd want someone who would start the big games ahead of him, who was stronger and faster yeah. and better. Um, Harry Kane, I know, I'm sure United will try and get Harry Kane. I'm sure they want to try and find out what the lie of the land is with Harry Kane early doors. They don't want to get involved in a row with Dan, not a row, but a wrangle with Daniel Levy that, that lasts the entirety of the summer. It will probably need Harry Kane to burn some bridges, whether he's prepared to do that or not, I don't know. But I think that he will want to stay in England because he wants Shearer's record to mitigate any lack of trophies that he might end his career with, without. Do you end your career with a lack of trophies, without that? <laughs> I don't know. But whichever it is. So I think that he'd probably be their first choice of striker because he's someone you know can come in and be brilliant from the off and change it. But whether that is possible or not, who knows? We shall see. Daniel, thanks a million. No worries. Have a good weekend. Just for having me, lads. Thanks a lot. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.